0: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com weightloss.
1: A couple weeks back, when the Food and Drug Administration decided to make a nasal spray that has the power to reverse an overdose available over the counter, Nancy Campbell thought about her own supply of this drug. It's called Narcan. She keeps it on her pretty much all the time.
2: Well, I carry my Narcan with me in my backpack. Um, I'm a professor at a college, and uh, since I talk about Narcan so often, I just have to
1: always have it with me to pull it out. Nancy is a historian of science and technology at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York. She studies drug use and abuse. She says she can't quite tell how big of a deal this Narcan news is going to be naloxone, the drug Narcan dispenses, it's been available without a prescription in other countries for years. But Nancy knows that here in the US, there have been real barriers to getting your hands on this stuff.
2: I did have the experience once of going into a Pennsylvania pharmacy and trying to purchase naloxone and having the pharmacist look at me and say, uh, that will cost you seven to eight hundred dollars. Whoa! And I thought uh, he didn't even ask for my insurance. He didn't ask me where I was from. He simply made a judgment. Hold on. Why do you think
1: he did that? Do you think he was just trying to prevent you from getting it? I
2: think that overdose, opioid overdose, had to be made a public issue. And there was a point in time when people still thought of it as a private shameful stigma. And so they treated people who had naloxone as if they themselves should be shamed and stigmatized.
1: So did you feel that shame in that moment? Yeah, absolutely.
2: That was a move that was made, uh, was calculated really to make me examine, well, why would I need it? In fact, I think he said to me,
1: why do you need it? Until now, the rules around overdose drugs have been really variable. Here in New York City, the Department of Health will hand you an overdose prevention kit, if you ask. In Arlington, Virginia, you can grab one from the public library. But in other places, it's not that easy.
2: Yeah. So I'm really hoping that over-the-counter naloxone will uh, prevent deaths and allow us to bring down That exponential curve that we've seen for the past 40 years. For the past 40 years, we've seen overdose deaths grow at about a rate of 9% every single year since 1979. And now we're at the top, and hopefully, this is a crest and we are going to come down in our overdose death rate.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you went back to that pharmacy that you went to, where the guy was like, it'll be a few hundred dollars. It sounds like in June, that won't matter. That gatekeeper will be gone.
2: Yes, and I think that's a great thing. And so I am hopeful about over-the-counter naloxone. I just don't think it's enough. And I think it comes uh, very late in the process.
1: Today on the show, how activists forced the U.S. government to make this life-saving drug more widely available. It took decades. And their fight, it's still not done. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
3: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform.
1: Narcan is the brand name for the nasal spray version of naloxone, right, which is a drug that can reverse overdoses? Yes. Uh,
2: So naloxone was synthesized in 1960. It was um, FDA-approved for opioid overdose reversal in 1971, and it's been available since then uh, largely within emergency medicine, which was also growing up during the 1970s. And so you would find uh, naloxone on your life support, on your basic life support trucks. How does it work? So everyone's brain has opioid receptors in it. And uh, those opioid receptors, if you imagine them as golf tees, when an opioid drug comes on and that's those are called agonists. Those are things like heroin or morphine or fentanyl. The opioid grabs onto the golf tee as if it's a golf ball. That can have the effect of depressing respiration. Naloxone is a very powerful opioid antagonist. It will knock the opioid right off the receptor and it will occupy that receptor for a very short time that will very rapidly allow people to breathe again. And sometimes that will happen very sharply, and it will throw people very quickly into
1: withdrawal from the opioid. Part of why I wanted to talk to you is that you've researched the long history of overdose reversal drugs like naloxone, and I was surprised to learn how old they are. Like, when were these kinds of drugs discovered and how?
2: Yeah, so they are quite old. Uh, There was a lot of users of opioids in the United States in the 19th and early 20th centuries when we criminalized morphine and heroin and other opiates. And so along the way, in the 1940s or so, There was the discovery of the first narcotic antagonist, nalorphine or naline, which will reverse opioid overdose, but not quite as dramatically as naloxone will. And it was used also by police to identify who exactly was or was not an opioid
1: addict. Hold it. Can you go back to that? I want to focus on the police just a little bit because I think the way police used it is so surprising because... We knew that this drug, nalorphine, could reduce overdoses, but that's not the way cops were using it. How did they use it? Law enforcement in California and other states
2: used naline, the brand name for nalorphine, uh, to detect whether someone's pupil size changed. And if it did, if they injected nalorphine uh, and someone's pupils changed,
1: uh, they were confirmed as an opiate addict. One of the things that was so striking about your historical research was learning that nalorphine would be used on people who were out on parole, probation, and weren't supposed to be using drugs and they'd have to come in for their appointment and then part of that appointment would be administering this drug that could throw them into very sudden withdrawal and the police just kind of watching and and then making decisions from there it was surprising to me
2: Yes, that is a quite surprising history of the narcotic antagonists. So the NALINE programs were used to fight uh, particular opioid epidemics in, say, East LA or uh, Northern California, San Francisco, Oakland had a big NALINE program. And what that meant was that, indeed, people came in to the police precinct In order to, uh, this was kind of like an early version of drug testing. This was before there was urine-based drug testing. Uh, The police would indeed administer uh, nalorphine and um, make sure that people were not using opioids. The problem, of course, is that people might be using opioids, and in that case, they would feel extremely ill. And then, of course, the police would know
1: that they had violated the conditions of their parole. So you said naloxone was developed in the 1960s. So a little bit after these naline tests entered the scene, how was naloxone's development different? pharmacologists were trying to figure out this business of the opiate
2: receptors in your brain. They're trying to figure out how they work. They're trying to figure out if there's any way that they could create a drug that could actually treat or block drug addiction. And so there was an idea that we could use the narcotic antagonists to make it impossible for people to get high, impossible for people to feel the effects of an opioid. And so the pharmaceutical company, Endo Pharmaceuticals, that took naloxone through the FDA approval process in the 1970s did not see a big market for it. So they were really thinking that naloxone was going to be a specialty drug confined largely
1: to uh, the operating room. Did they think, oh, maybe it'll be used in the ER in an emergency in case someone's OD'd? There were clinical reports
2: of people being brought in uh, to emergency rooms and naloxone being used in cases of known opioid overdose. So they were certainly thinking about that. But my point is they're thinking about a medical market. They're not thinking about a consumer market. And in fact, even the idea of having naloxone out in the hands of people who need it most, um, drug users, that was never conceived of. That, That was never thought of until the activists in the harm reduction organizations of the 1990s began to see opioid overdose in their friends and began to realize that if they had had naloxone, they could have prevented a death.
1: Yeah. Tell me about how the use of naloxone spread. Because originally it was an injectable, right? And then that changed. So how did the whole way that naloxone was used shift?
2: By the mid-1980s, naloxone was off patent and it was an injectable solution that came in little tiny glass vials that you had to load into a syringe. And so in the 1990s, when harm reduction activists, and this happened simultaneously in different places, but in particular it happened at the Chicago Recovery Alliance uh, with a guy named Dan Big, who began to realize he lost a friend from overdose in 1996, and he began to realize drug users are good at getting solutions into syringes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so he began to experiment with obtaining naloxone and then Um, CRA became, in a sense, a national clearinghouse, even an international clearinghouse for that product. And that product was simply negotiated for Dan and uh, his cronies would negotiate with manufacturers of naloxone, and they would be supplied these little glass vials. And that is how the distribution of naloxone beyond the medical use began. Were they giving it directly to users? They were giving it directly to uh, users and their friends, partners, so people who they
1: might use with. But simultaneously, wasn't naloxone also being criminalized in some places? Yeah, so there are many accounts of
2: activists being arrested. Now, they may have had opioids on their person as well, but also they were not supposed to exactly have naloxone needles were also criminalized. Paraphernalia was criminalized by the parents movement of the 1980s, that sort of Reagan era, just say no movement. And so naloxone was in a sense uh, just thought of as part of uh, the paraphernalia that would I- indict a person as a drug user. And certainly giving it out to people was, was uh, seen as a violation because it was a prescription-only drug. And so what the harm reduction activists and notably notably uh, Chicago Recovery Alliance did was to create legal pharmaceutical prescriptions called standing orders that allowed you to prescribe to a member of a group rather than to
1: an individual. It's funny because it really does seem like this neck wrench, like it's like naloxone comes out, harm reductionists start distributing it to people, laws start to criminalize naloxone, and then the harm reductionist community pushes back again and opens up access. It's like this back and forth and back and forth. And I feel like the sort of final back and forth is making naloxone available as a nasal spray So it's not an injection. It's not something you need expertise in. You can just squirt it in someone's nose. And that makes it even more available, right?
2: Yes. So I think about this process as like the game of whack-a-mole. Every time uh, harm reduction activists thought that they were going to be able to get naloxone and overdose prevention education out to people, a new barrier appeared that they had to overcome. Now, the intranasal version of naloxone came about as a result of innovation
1: by paramedics. Hold it. They came up with a way to make it a nasal spray on their own, the EMT? Exactly. Uh, They had other... Um,
2: solutions that could be administered intranasally. And so when they figured out that this could happen, pharmaceutical companies began to innovate in this sort of nasal spray market. And so this does move naloxone into a much more possible for the consumer market. You don't have to have that much education. The first uh, overdose prevention educations were hours long, Uh, When I went to pick up the naloxone kit that I have right now, when I went to my public health department to get that education, it was five minutes. So the uh, nasal spray has indeed reduced the knowledge necessary for navigating an overdose situation to almost nothing
1: because we have this technology, Narcan. After the break, what real changes will Americans see? when Narcan moves over-the-counter. I've had this question on my mind since I learned that Narcan would be available over-the-counter, which was like, if overdose rates weren't what they are today and what they are today, like last year, it was about 100,000 people a year who died. From an overdose, do you think if those numbers were a little lower, like would this approval have happened at all? I'm not sure
2: that we would have seen the um, any innovation in this sector. The federal agencies have been so lagging behind in terms of seeing overdose as the public issue that it is. So um, I I would say no. I would say that unfortunately, our federal agencies have been very slow to see this 40-year epidemic as a public problem, that they have finally done so I, really honestly, the CDC did not keep track of overdose deaths until the activists started showing up and drawing attention to them. And that is partly because oftentimes when we're in the midst of an epidemic, we may not really realize where we are. When we look retrospectively at the last 40 years and realize that even in the mid-90s, we did not really know the activists' knew because they knew that their friends were dying. Uh, But the rest of us, including government uh, at federal, state, municipal, county level, did not realize that we were in an opioid overdose epidemic of
1: the sort that we are in. Who does this decision to make Narcan available over-the-counter help the most? Because, you know, like I live in New York City I know of, like, high schools where kids are just trained to administer it and given Narcan and sent on their way. So how big of a difference is it going to be to have this drug available over-the-counter at the local pharmacy? I'm hoping
2: it will make
1: a difference. Uh, In my heart of hearts,
2: I am not sure what difference it, it will make. And we haven't, by the way, yet heard what the price will be to the consumer. I also wonder about what public health departments will decide to do. In other words, will they still decide to put their budget towards uh, naloxone when now consumers are supposedly able to go into a pharmacy, a drugstore, and purchase it?
1: I wonder if you think the real change with the FDA making this decision about Narcan being over-the-counter, I wonder if you think the real change is the normalization of this drug. And I say that because you've written really compellingly about how naloxone is a technology of solidarity, because it requires there to be another person there, a conscious person, a person who can revive you with this drug. You can't do it to yourself. So what it really requires is not just a drug, but someone else there to help you. And if we're all very familiar with Narcan from walking up and down the aisles of Rite Aid or whatever, maybe it makes that solidarity more possible.
2: I am hoping that that is true. Uh, I have thought a lot about the way in which naloxone, the harm reduction activists, their first tenet is never use alone. That's not possible for everybody. Many people who use opioids do use alone, uh, despite all of the education and all of the construction of naloxone as a technology of solidarity. I do think that this change, this normalization, this democratization of naloxone does mean that people's attitudes and beliefs, their emotional support... Uh, for drug users in their midst, and also the openness that people will hopefully have about their drug use, because typically it is hidden until it's too late. I teach students um, in a course called Drugs in History every year at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and I am often surprised at the low level of knowledge concerning opioids, opioid overdose, and drugs more generally. um, These are not mundane technologies. These technologies can kill you. And you should know, as a consumer, you need to be educated about uh, opioids, in particular, opioid overdose, and if you have a prescription for opioids, you should be co-prescribed naloxone. And if you're if you're prescribed an opioid and not co-prescribed naloxone, you should be asking
1: for naloxone at your pharmacy. You know, we've talked about how the U.S. is kind of late to the party when it comes to making a drug like Narcan more widely available, and I've been thinking about that as we talk because. Naloxone, Narcan, it's a drug that simply keeps people alive for a little bit of time. It gives them just a little, a couple more minutes, hours, days, whatever. It doesn't get them healthier in any kind of wider way. There are drugs that could help people struggling with addiction live a more normal life if they want to. Drugs like Suboxone and Methadone and Buprenorphine. They allow people to stabilize their relationship with narcotics. How available are those drugs?
2: Yes, if there's anything that should be over the counter, no. um, I would like to see much wider
1: availability of treatment drugs. And the fear with drugs like methadone, suboxone, buprenorphine, is it's that they contain opioids. And so you're maintaining your use of opioids, even though these drugs may allow you to live a more steady life.
2: Yes, uh, they don't just contain opioids, they are opioids. This is a form of medication-assisted treatment. And yet, those drugs are not nearly as widely available as they should be. And that is what we should be focusing on. In a lot of ways, naloxone is a Band-Aid. And we stigmatize uh, people who need to be on addiction treatment drugs uh, in long-term ways uh, to support
1: their not using drugs that are unsafe. I imagine that some of my listeners, after hearing this interview, they're going to want to know how they can use Narcan now that they know they may be able to get their hands on it in just a few weeks. What would you tell them? About using this drug and and what to look for if they're worried someone in their life is struggling with opiates. First, I would uh, advise anyone who
2: can purchase over the counter naloxone to do so and carry it with them, uh, and to look online at the various tutorials that harm reduction activists, uh, the harm reduction coalition, and others um, have have posted tutorials so it's possible to educate oneself um, to use this product because what you don't want to do is be in a situation where you have to look up a YouTube uh, tutorial while you're concerned that someone is overdosing. Um, uh, Time matters, right? Seconds matter in those uh, situations. Minutes matter. And so you want to know how to use this product before you run into a situation where you need to save someone's life.
1: Nancy, I'm so grateful for your time and your research. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for your interest and attention. Nancy Campbell is the head of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute's Department of Science and Technology Studies. She's also the author of OD, Naloxone and the Politics of Overdose. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com/whatnextplus and sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are getting a ton of support these days from Laura Spencer and Jared Downing. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate, and I'm Mary Harris. You can go check me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Catch you next time.